Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 is our passage today. As the kids head downstairs, we're continuing our trek through the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, here in Numbers 11 today. Uh, I'm going to begin by reading verses 23 through 29 of that chapter. Numbers 11, 23 through 29, those are the verses that will appear on the screens in front of you. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's, let's pray. Ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that since Moses said those words, your spirit has come and rested on us and indwelt us, and that it is your spirit who illuminates now our hearts and illuminates your word so that we understand what uh, you're saying to us. We pray that he would do that work in us today. Open our hearts, open our eyes, so that we might see wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Our longing for holiness will always be met by the gracious provision of God's spirit. Our longing for holiness will always be met by the gracious provision of God's Spirit. We've just seen that in the verses that we just read, and we're going to talk more about that over the course of our time in this chapter this morning. We're also going to see that our longing for anything else will always be met by the severe mercy of God's discipline, because he always wants to point us back to the other thing, longing for his holiness. We have been talking about holiness a lot in numbers and in the Pentateuch in general, we've been talking about holiness, how, how God wants his people to be holy. And he doesn't just want them to be holy, but he wants them to long for holiness. And so if you remember when we were looking at Numbers chapter 6 and talking about the Nazarite vow, we were talking about it in that context, the desire for holiness that really lies at the heart of who we are as human beings. Whether we realize it or not, that's what we crave. That's what we long for, is the holiness of God's person and presence. And and, uh, last week we talked about holiness as well as we saw Israel preparing to move on from Sinai where they had been encamped for over a year onto the wilderness of Paran. And so last week when we were looking Looking at chapter 10, we saw them uh, take that journey from Sinai to the wilderness of Paran. But now, in chapters 11 and 12 of Numbers, uh, we are seeing uh, some stops that they made along the way, some encounters that happened as they were going from Sinai to Paran. 
Um, and so probably now is actually a good time also just to give you a heads up about where we're going the next several weeks. Today we are here in Numbers 11. Next week we will be looking at Numbers chapters, uh, chapter 12. Uh, and then the week after that, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And then, Lord willing, March 17th, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 15. And then, as you can see uh, there from the screen, we'll be taking a three-week um, hiatus from Numbers. And we we'll celebrate Palm Sunday and, and Easter there at the end of March. And then the first Sunday in April, we're going to have a special missions emphasis Sunday. Uh, we've invited um, Laura's dad, Rod Kidd, uh, to join us for that. Some of you may remember him. He's preached for us here before. He's a retired missionary, and we're excited to have him. And we'll give you more information about that Missions Emphasis Sunday as we get closer to it. But that, that gives you a heads up about where we're going for the next several weeks. This morning, we are here in Numbers 11 this morning. And actually, what we see as we get into these first few verses of Numbers 11 is that verses 1, 2, and 3 actually kind of serve as a prologue for the rest of the chapter, and in a sense, for the experience of Israel from here on out. So look at the first three verses of Numbers 11. This is all, by the way, of introduction, by the way. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, on the one hand, of course, this is just a historical account. This is something that happened. This is a place where Israel stopped, and, and they had this experience. There's a place name here. So this is a thing that happened historically in, in the travel, uh, in the journey of Israel. But there's another sense in which I think Moses places it here because it serves as a gloss for the rest of their experience. It serves as an, as an analog, an analogy, of a foreshadowing of everything that's going to happen, especially what's going to happen in the rest of chapter 11, but as I said, also for what's going to happen in the verses that follow. Um, you see a pattern developing, even just in those first three verses, the pattern of Israel complaining and God responding with judgment and then Moses interceding and God removing the judgment. And we're going to see that pattern again and again. Um, and in fact, when you think about that pattern in, in that way, one of the things you realize is that we've seen that pattern before, haven't we? That kind of reminds us of something. God judging, people crying out for mercy, Moses interceding, God removing the judgment. Does that remind you of anything? Looks a lot like the plagues on Egypt, doesn't it? And I think that's not a mistake. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think there's a sense in which what we're seeing here in the opening verses of chapter 11 and throughout the rest of the chapter and throughout the rest of the experience in the book of Numbers is that Israel is looking a whole lot like Egypt. They're responding to God a whole lot like the Egyptians. And then God brings a plague on them or he brings some kind of judgment, some kind of discipline, and they ask for mercy and Moses intervenes and God removes it just like with the plagues. So already there's something convicting and telling here about what's going on. This is supposed to be God's special people, God's particular people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But instead of that, what we see is that they're looking just like the land of Egypt out of which they came. And that, of course, sets the stage for what we're going to be seeing in these verses that follow. Um, what we see in the verses that follow, of course, is bookended by one idea, and it's that idea of longing, 
the idea of craving. So if you look at verse 4, it says, there was a rabble among them that had a strong craving. And then if you skip ahead to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 34, it says that there they buried the people who had the strong craving. It's that idea of craving or longing that really um, unifies this chapter, and that's where we have our main idea coming from. We're supposed to long for something, but it's not supposed to be the things of this earth or the things from which we came out of slavery. It's supposed to be the holiness of God. And so we're going to see three portraits of longing this morning. I've printed those uh, three points on the back of your handout. If you like to take notes, you can use those as headers. We're going to see the portrait of Israel, the portrait of Moses, and the portrait of Joshua, three portraits of craving, three portraits of longing. Our longing for holiness will always be met by the gracious provision of God's Spirit, but our longing for anything else will be met by the severe mercy of God's discipline. So, first of all, let's consider the first portrait of longing, the portrait that Israel is for us. Look at verses 4 through 9. 4 through 9. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, it says. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Now, the first thing that we want to do as we look at these verses is to identify the rabble. That's what this translation says. Who is this, this rabble? Uh, it's, a, it's an unusual word. In fact, uh, that Hebrew word that gets translated that way, this is the only time it appears in the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And so there's some disagreement as to what this group is. Who is this rabble that verse 4 is talking about? And the general consensus seems to be to, to identify this group with that quote-unquote mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt uh, in Exodus chapter 12. Do you remember that? When the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt, it says a mixed multitude came with them, and we understand that to mean that there were a lot of non-Israelites who came up with Israel. So, so maybe that includes Egyptians who saw the plagues on Egypt, saw how Yahweh showed himself to be strong and, and more powerful than all the false gods of Egypt, and they were convicted by that. And, and so they said, we're going to throw in our lot with Israel. We're going to throw in our lot with Yahweh. We're going to go with them. Or maybe there were other nationalities, non-Israelites, and also non-Egyptians, just other nationalities that are there in Egypt at the same time, and maybe even enslaved at the same time, we don't know, and maybe they take that opportunity to, to go up with, with Israel. But there's this mixed multitude, uh, Exodus 12, 38 or 39, I think. Uh, and so most people, when they look at th this verse 4 of Numbers 11, the rabble that was among them, they say it must refer to that, that mixed multitude, all of those non-Israelites. And that may well be the case. Certainly, the way verse 4 is structured, there does seem to be a differentiation made between that group called the rabble in that first sentence, and the people of Israel also in the second sentence of verse 4. There does seem to be a differentiation made. So there's that group, and then there's the people of Israel also who wept. So it's entirely possible that that is exactly what Moses means. He's referring to that mixed multitude. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter, right? 
And, and one of the things that we have to absolutely be very careful of is to not take this to mean that because there is a mixed multitude, a group of non-Israelites there who seem to be causing some kind of trouble here in the, in the congregation of Israel, that that is some kind of a tacit warning against mixing races or having different groups of people together. And the reason that I'm pointing that out is because that is precisely the argument that some people make from this verse. That because there is a bunch of non-Israelites in Israel and they seem to be causing trouble here, then that's a good reason for us to be very careful uh, about having races mixed together. And that's an argument that is still being made, brothers and sisters, by so-called Christians. Okay, And so I want you to stay far away from that argument. And I want to give you several reasons why that's not the right way to look at this verse. Okay. I want to give you several reasons why that cannot be what this passage is supposed to be teaching us. First of all, consider this. Throughout the Pentateuch, throughout God's regulations to the people of Israel, he is constantly peppering his regulations to Israel with regulations concerning how to treat the sojourners among them. Right? God is always saying, here's how you treat the sojourners. Here's how you treat those who, who are Gentiles among you. There's even regulations about how the Gentiles are to handle the Passover. We just read that last week in chapter 9 uh, of, of Numbers, where God says, if there are sojourners among you, here's how they can celebrate the Passover, if, as long as they want to keep the regulations this way. In other words, all through God's law, he expects there to be non-Israelites in Israel, and therefore he gives his tacit approval for that. That's the first reason. Second reason we know that's not how we're supposed to read this passage is that God's entire mission in redeeming Israel from Egypt in the precise way that he did was to demonstrate to all the nations of the world that he is God, right? That's what, that's what Moses, speaking for God, said to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up so that my power might be displayed in you to all the peoples of the earth. In other words, God's mission was so that all nations, not just Israel, would see his power and glory. So the fact that there is a mixed multitude that come up with Israel out of Egypt is not a bad thing. It's evidence that God has done what he has set out to do, demonstrated his power to all the nations. A third reason that we know that that's not how we're supposed to read this passage is that in the very next chapter of Numbers, we're going to encounter a situation that is catalyzed by the fact that Moses is married to a Cushite woman. And Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, take issue with that. Moses is married to a Cushite. Cush was the, the ancient name for that country which we think of today as Ethiopia in Africa. In other words, he had an African wife. And Aaron and Miriam were upset about that, presumably for prejudicial reasons, racial prejudicial reasons. And God sharply rebukes them. We're going to see that next week. I don't want to take too much from next week's sermon, uh, but it seems odd to me that if the point of this passage is to say, watch out for too much racial intermingling, that in the very next chapter, God is going to rebuke those who are upset with Moses for having an interracial marriage. That doesn't make much sense, does it? The fourth reason we know that this is not the right way to read this passage is that in the Psalm 78 where the psalmist refers back to the history of Israel and makes specific reference to this story. You don't need to look that up right now, but you can jot that reference down in your notes, Psalm 78. He makes specific reference to this passage, and he never once mentions anything about the mixed multitude or about the quote-unquote rabble in verse 4, but he does mention their strong craving, 
So as the psalmist reads this story, the inspired psalmist, he sees the problem as not being the group of people in question, but their wrong desire, their wrong longings. And then finally, we know that the emphasis here in verse 4 is not on the group of people, the rabble, but that it is rather on the strong craving, because it is that word or phrase that is repeated as a bookend at the end of the chapter. Here in verse 4, it says they had a strong craving. And as we already mentioned in verse 34, it says the name of that place was called Kibrat Hatava because there they buried the people who had the craving. In other words, that's the thing in view. What were they craving? What were they longing for that caused so much trouble? So instead of asking the question, who is the rabble? The question that we want to ask is, what was their craving? What was their desire? What was their longing? The craving here is a particular strong desire. A particularly strong desire. Our English translation says it's a strong craving. A strong craving. Or some translations are going to say a greedy desire. Right? In Hebrew, it's hitavu tava. It's a repetition of the Hebrew word tava. Okay, by repeating it that way, it's intensifying it. Literally, it's saying they craved with a strong craving. Actually, that's a pretty common Hebrew construction. Here's a little Hebrew syntax uh, 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 tangent for you. Okay, uh, it's, it's common in Hebrew to repeat a verb and a noun together in order to, to intensify it. One of the best places where this happens, in my opinion, is in Genesis 2. Do you remember in Genesis 2 where God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because on the day when they eat of it, they will surely die, right? That's the English translation, but what God actually says is, when you eat of it, dying you will die, right? And we'll read in... Uh, I think we'll read later in Numbers and, and, and in, in some of the books of the Chronicles and the Kings, we'll read about how people are killed with death. And, and there's all kinds of strange redundancies in Hebrew syntax. And it does that in order to intensify it. So here, they're craving with a strong craving. They have a strong desire, a strong lusting, a strong longing. And what is it that they're longing for? Well, apparently, they want something better to eat, Right? We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. That does sound pretty good. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. What they crave, ostensibly at least, is the easy food of Egypt. They're tired of the manna. It's funny, we, we've mentioned... Uh, I think, Mark, you mentioned Keith Green, right, in your prayer. We sang a Keith Green song earlier in our service, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful, which is a very devotional song. But Keith Green, being the hippie Christian that he was, uh, wrote a lot of songs that were not just devotional and worshipful. He wrote some interesting, folksy, humorous songs. One of them was based on this story called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, right? I looked it up this week because I was thinking about it. Listen to these words. This is from Keith Green. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure? Are you sorry you bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? You wanted to live in the land of promise, but now it's getting so hard and you're sorry you're out here in the desert instead of in your own backyard eating leeks and onions by the Nile. And in the morning, 
It's manna hotcakes, and we snack on manna all day, and we sure had a winner last night for dinner, flaming manna souffle. And he keeps, keeps going in that vein, and towards the end of the song, he just rattles off a whole bunch of manna recipes. Manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patty, banana bread. You know. I included that last one for you, Marlena. I thought you'd appreciate that. You can use that, but you have to cite Keith Green. All right. Ostensibly, the thing that these people are craving is something different than the manna. But of course, that's really just a picture of what's really going on in their hearts. What they want is a return to the stability, the security of the life, or the seeming security of the life they thought they had in Egypt. But of course, as we read the story, we're struck by the irony of it, right? They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. And you imagine God going, wait, what? That cost you nothing? What about your lives? What about your freedom? What about your cultural identity? It cost you nothing? You were slaves. And it's absurd, isn't it? I mean, when you read this story, don't you think this is absurd? And as soon as you do that, if you're at all, if you have any degree of intellectual honesty, any degree of spiritual transparency, as soon as you do that, you realize that we are just like this, don't you? This is exactly what we do. It is easy to crave, to long for that which we think is going to make us happy. Have you ever stared sin dead in the face and known that it was the sin that enslaved you? It was the sin that enslaved you and from which God set you free. But have you ever still, knowing all that, still looked at and, and said, I want it. I want that. We do that, brothers and sisters, don't we? We do that whenever we feel that craving in our heart for human affirmation or, or uh, uh, financial security or stability or any of the fulfillments of our appetites. That's what we're doing. We're saying, these are the things which I made an idol of before, which I was enslaved to before, and which by the grace of God from which I am now set free. But for goodness sake, thinking about it right now makes me want it. I want that. Lord, why'd you take it away? And we are just like these Israelites, right? Israel is a portrait of longing, a portrait for us of craving, craving earthly things, craving the security of earthly things. That's our first portrait of longing here. The second portrait of longing is the longing, uh, is the portrait of Moses. Our longing for holiness will always be met by the gracious provision of God's spirit, but our longing for anything else will always be met by the severe mercy of God's discipline. Consider a second this portrait of Moses. Look at how the story continues, verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. It's a group pity party, right? Everyone is weeping. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. 
once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. God was angry with the people for their, presumably for their ungratefulness and for their, for their uh, looking back at their life of slavery from which he had graciously rescued them. And it says his anger burned hotly. And it also says that Moses was displeased. And we could read that as saying that God was angry at the people, his anger burned hotly. And Moses also was angry at the people, his anger burned hotly. And that is, I think, kind of the, the, the first blush reading that the passage gives us. But I want to suggest to you that that's maybe not the best way to read what's happening here. I don't think the story lends itself to that interpretation. And I want to give you a few reasons. Number one, the general pattern throughout the Pentateuch is that when Moses is angry with the people of Israel, he says so to them. He verbally rebukes them. Almost always, when Moses is angry with the people of Israel, he verbally rebukes the people. You see that in Numbers 16, you see that in Numbers 20, you see that in the incident of the golden calf. When Moses is angry at them, he yells at them. He doesn't hold back, he doesn't mince words. On the contrary, again, the general pattern seems to be that when Moses is just upset about his situation, if he's frustrated or if he's overwhelmed, he talks to God, which is what we see him doing here. Now, again, I don't want to build too much theology on that idea or die on that hill, but I think that's a general pattern that we see happening, and I think it pertains here. Second, God's response to Moses in this passage, as we will see in a minute, is not primarily to punish the people, although there will be punishment, as we'll see, nor is it primarily to rebuke Moses, nor is it even initially to answer their request for meat, although, again, we will see him doing that in a few minutes. But his primary response, as we will see, is to provide helpers for Moses. That's the first thing that God does. We'll read about that in just a minute. Thus demonstrating that Moses' main issue is his inability to handle the people by himself. Even the language of verse 10, thirdly, seems to indicate that what displeased Moses is the fact that God Sorry, the fact that the people were complaining and the fact that God is therefore angry at them. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that when we read verse 10, what we, should, what we should understand to be happening here is that the anger of the Lord is burning against the people and Moses is displeased by that. Moses is displeased by the entire situation. It's not that Moses is upset at the people in the same way that God is anger is burning against the people. It's that Moses is looking at the whole situation. He's seeing the people complaining, and he's seeing God angry. He's seeing God and his people at odds with one another, and it's that situation that Moses is displeased at. Why? Because Moses knows that it is his job to shepherd the people of Israel towards holiness in relationship with God, and he sees all of it falling apart. And that's what is upsetting to Moses. And that's what we see him expressing here. Why have I not found favor in your sight? You see, why have I not found favor in your sight? He doesn't say anything about the people initially. He says, what have I done? Why, why have you put this on me? I can't do it, God. That's what's happening. The people are longing for something. They're longing for something that's unimportant. They're longing for food, for meat. 
And Moses' heart is broken because he knows that's the wrong thing for them to be longing for. But what is it that Moses is longing for? He is longing for God and his people to be on right terms with each other. He is longing for God's anger to be abated. He is longing for holiness amongst the people of Israel. He is longing for that very thing for which they had gone through everything that we read about in the book of Leviticus, the consecration of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priests and the institution of the sacrificial system and all of that, all of that that was supposed to accomplish the holiness of God's people, the day of atonement, everything that was supposed to accomplish God dwelling with his people is now going out the window and Moses is furious and he's brokenhearted. What do I do? That's what Moses is saying. How do I handle this? The people longed for meat. Moses longed for the people's holiness. Moses' complaint to God is not primarily one of anger with the people, but of frustration for not being able to adequately lead the people into a state of proper relationship with God. And that explains God's particular response. And just before we look at God's response in the next verses, would you just take a moment and consider the bluntness of Moses' prayer? (laughs) Just the rawness of Moses' words to God, the transparency with which he speaks? There is no standing on ceremony with Moses. He just lays it all out there. And I think that's valuable. I think, I think there's value for us to, 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 to find there. As we think about prayer, as we think about what it means to just be open and honest with God. Sometimes when we think about prayer, we think about you know, how Jesus taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer. Or the Psalms. Although for the record, there's a lot of Psalms that are just as, as raw as this, aren't there? You know what we need to do sometimes? We need to do a series on prayer that focuses on Moses' prayers. That's all it is, just Moses' prayers. I think it might alter the way we think about prayer a little bit. Moses is just raw, and he's authentic with God, and I think that teaches us that we can, we can be that way too. We're not going to offend God. We're not going to surprise him with any attitudes of our hearts. Anyway, Moses lays all this out with God, and then we see God's response. Look at verse 16 and following. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Notice, he hasn't said anything about any meat for the people yet. Right? Hasn't even addressed that issue. From God's perspective, the real issue here with Moses is that Moses needs help. Then verse 18. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and it becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I am, number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And this is where we started this morning, right? 
God promises two things to Moses. He promises, first of all, an outpouring of his spirit. And he also promises an outpouring of meat. Promises both things. How, do we, how are we supposed to understand this? What is happening exactly in this passage? I want to suggest to you that verse 18 is the key to understanding everything that's happening in this chapter. Verse 18 is the key to understanding what's going on. Look at what he says. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. Now, I don't know if, you, if, I don't know if that set off any alarm bells for you as we were just reading it or, or as you were reading it in preparation for today, which I'm sure all of you did, right? This week you read Numbers 11 in preparation for today. Yeah. I don't know if it set off alarm bells for you or not. It did not for me the first time I read it. And it has not for me in all the years that I've been reading Numbers. I've never thought much about that verse. But I want you to think about it now. God says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you will eat meat. Why does he say consecrate yourselves? Why does he say consecrate yourselves? He's going to bring a bunch of quail. We're going to read about that in a minute. There's going to be birds all over the camp. They're going to be able to trap them and and slaughter them and butcher them and dry them. But why in God's name do they need to consecrate themselves to do that? Never in the law, nowhere in the Pentateuch, are they ever told to consecrate themselves so that they can kill birds and eat them. So what is happening here? Do you know where God does tell them to consecrate themselves? It's whenever he's going to show up, right? Or whenever there's going to be some special work for them to do. Right? So in Exodus 19, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, he says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. And then the next day, God comes in power and, and there's earthquake and, and fire and cloud on Mount Sinai. Or in Exodus 29, where, where God is, is preparing the priesthood and he says, consecrate Aaron and his sons. And they're being prepared for their service in the tabernacle. That's consecration. You see where we're going with this? Or throughout Leviticus, this is part of the formula that God says, consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Later on in Joshua, God is going to say, consecrate yourselves right before God comes and and parts the waters of the Jordan River for them to cross into the promised land. But those are the contexts in which God says, consecrate yourselves, consecrate yourself for me or for the work that I'm giving you to do. Never consecrate yourself so that you can have a good meal. That doesn't make any sense. So why does he say it here? Why does he say it here? Well, of course, on the one hand, there's a sense in which this is a foreshadowing of the fact that he's going to pour out his spirit, right? So it's a foreshadowing of that that's going to happen in in the verses that we read at the start of our sermon. He pours out his spirit on the 70 elders that are chosen. But again, here in verse 18, he doesn't say that. He says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you will eat meat. Here's what's happening. I'm convinced of this, all right? Here's what I think is happening. God is purposefully emphasizing their wrong desires. He's saying, if you people are going to act like the best thing you can possibly have is meat, if you're going to act like that's the only thing worth longing for, then I am going to act like that's the only thing for you to to be longing for also, and I'm going to tell you to act towards it like you act towards me. Normally, I would say, consecrate yourselves for my coming, but since you love meat so much, go ahead, consecrate yourselves for your meat. Make yourselves holy for this wonderful meat that you value so much. This is a sarcastic statement from God. Consecrate yourselves. Go ahead, treat your meat like your God. And meanwhile, he says, while you fill your bellies with meat, I am going to fill my people with my spirit. 
While you find satisfaction with meat, my chosen people will find satisfaction that only I can give as I pour out my spirit on them. You see, in this way, there is a certain symbolism, a certain, uh, not symbolism, a certain connection between the outpouring of God's spirit and the outpouring of the quail. Look what happens. Skip ahead to the, the, the coming of the quail in verse 31. Verse 31, then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and they gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten omers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibrot Hata'ava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibrot Hata'ava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained there at Hazaroth. We started our sermon time this morning by reading of the outpouring of God's Spirit on the 70 elders. Here we read about the outpouring of the quail. And there's a connection between them, right? But it's not a connection of symbolism. It's not as though the quail symbolized the spirit. Rather, it's a connection of alternatives. God is saying, who will you be, Israel? Will you be people who are satisfied by meat? Or will you be people who will be satisfied by nothing else but my spirit? Or if we want to generalize it a little bit more from there, we can say, what kind of people will we be? Will we be people who are satisfied with earthly things? Will we be people who are satisfied by the satisfaction of our earthly appetites? Or will we long for nothing else but the holiness of God's presence and his spirit? You see what's going on here? Our longing for holiness will be met by the gracious outpouring of God's spirit But a longing for anything else will be met by the severe mercy of God's discipline. And we see God's discipline here, don't we? It says, even while the meat was between their teeth, the plague came and struck many down. And I think the right way to read this is that while many were struck down by this great plague, the ones who died and who were buried, according to verse 34, were those who had exhibited the craving in the first place. God is removing the ones who who were the troublemakers, so to speak, the ones who had the wrong craving and who led others to as well, while mercifully disciplining everyone else. Our longing for holiness will always be met by the gracious provision of God's Spirit. Our longing for anything else will be met by the severe mercy of God's discipline. So we have the portrait of Israel and the portrait of Moses. There is one final portrait that I want to briefly touch on before we run out of time this morning, and that's the portrait of Joshua. We read uh, a little bit ago about these two men, one named Eldad, one named Medad, who apparently were of the 70 that Moses identified as, as elders of Israel and for whom God was going to pour out his spirit. But look at what happens in verse 26. These two men remained in the camp, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, which I take to mean they were of those that Moses identified, But they had not gone to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. Now, we don't know why they didn't go to the tent. Moses doesn't tell us. 
But the fact that Joshua is so indignant by the fact that the Spirit falls on them seems to indicate that their reason for not going to the tent when Moses called them is some kind of a rebelliousness of spirit. Maybe they didn't think they needed to. Maybe they didn't feel like Moses had the authority to call them out. Maybe they just weren't interested. Again, it could be some other reason. We don't want to read too much into it. Maybe they were unclean and so they couldn't go out to the tabernacle. But again, if that were the case, why is Joshua so upset about the whole situation? Because Joshua clearly is upset about it, isn't he? A young man, verse 27, ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. Joshua apparently is indignant that these people whom he considers unworthy to have the Spirit are prophesying. And he wants Moses to put a stop to it. I'm not quite sure what's going on exactly in this, in this account or why it is exactly that Joshua is so upset. But I'm, I'm guessing that, that this is demonstrating something to us about Joshua's immaturity and Joshua's uh, longing as well. We saw the longing of the people was for meat and the longing of Moses was for a right relationship between Israel and God and for the holiness of God's people. If there is a longing that we can identify in Joshua here, it's a, it's a longing for uh, exclusive access to God, maybe. An exclusivity about this relationship with God. Or maybe he's trying to defend the dignity of Moses in some way. That's how Moses interprets it. Are you jealous for my sake? The lesson here is that God gives his spirit to whom he will. And his good pleasure should be enough to satisfy us. But Moses' response to Joshua, I think, reveals again what we've been saying all along about Moses' heart, Moses' longing. He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. You see, that's what Moses longs for. That's the heart of a shepherd. That's what he wants for his people. He wants Israel, all of them, to have the spirit of God. Moses, and maybe there's even a certain kind of a selfishness about this, as, as Moses exhibited earlier. He knows that he can't bear the burden of this. He can't be the only one speaking God's word to God's people. He can't bear the burden of it. He wants everybody to be able to talk to God, and then he can just go retire, Right? But I think there's more to it than that, isn't there? Isn't there also this sense that Moses knows that that's what's needed? What's needed is for everyone, every individual amongst God's people to have a personal relationship with him. Would that all of God's people were prophets. His final words there. Would that all of God's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. How excited, how excited Moses must have been when from his heavenly vantage point some six or seven hundred years later another prophet would write these words. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then another 700 or so years after that, 
What what would Moses' expression have been as he looked down from heaven and saw the fulfillment of that prophecy on that Pentecost day in the book of Acts chapter 2, right? When the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There it is. It's the fulfillment of the thing that Moses had longed for. Would that all of God's people were prophets. Would that his spirit rested on all of them. And there it is. Moses didn't get to see it on earth. But it happened on the day of Pentecost. But what had changed? What had changed since Moses' day? Well, there was a better prophet now, wasn't there? You see, when Moses looked out and saw the people complaining and he saw the anger, the wrath of God kindled against God's people, he was displeased with it, but he couldn't do anything about it. All he could do was cast himself on the mercy of God. But when a new prophet, a prophet like Moses, arose amongst his brothers and he saw the wrath of God kindled against his people, he could do something about it, right? That's what Jesus did. Jesus was just as displeased as Moses when he saw the wrath of God against his people. But Jesus, unlike Moses, could do something about it. Jesus stepped into the gap. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in the place of his people. That's what the cross is. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. And because he is infinite in his eternal being, he absorbed it and he overcame it and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and from the throne in heaven he sent out his spirit there on the day of Pentecost. And now, because of that, because God's wrath is removed, because our Lord and Savior stands at the right hand of the throne of God, God's Spirit now can do something that Moses only longed for. It can rest on each of us. Brothers and sisters, it rests on you as you belong to the Lord. You are the fulfillment of the longing that Moses longed for. God's Spirit is in you. And the evidence that God's Spirit rests in you is the fact that you can see day by day your longing for earthly things being set aside and your longing for the holiness of God's presence taking precedence more and more. And you might hear that and you might say, I don't see that. I wish I saw that, Andrew. I wish I could say that I saw my longing for God being greater than my longing for earthly things. Brothers and sisters, understand, to the extent that you long for your longing for God to be stronger, you are longing for God. Your longing for your longing for God is a longing for God. You see? That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. (laughs) Now, if it is true for you that you... Honestly, look at yourself and you see no desire for God, no desire for the holiness of God, and you see only a longing for earthly things and earthly satisfaction. Then I invite you to come and talk to me before you go, because let's, let's get this straight. Let's figure out why that is. I want you to belong to the Lord. I want you to have the Spirit dwelling in you so that your longing for God can be fulfilled. And know this, your longing for the holiness of God will be met by the outpouring of his spirit. Take that into consideration now as you reflect. Just in silent thought and prayer where you're sitting, give thanks to God for the spirit that indwells you. Give thanks to God for the spirit that was poured out by Christ. 
Give thanks to God for the way that he is day by day changing your heart. Pray silently where you are. And then after a few minutes, we'll, re we'll worship together once more. <laughs>